0: All right, would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11? We're moving through, and we're now in the Passion Week. As you're finding Mark chapter 11, we're going to be in verses 20 to 26. I want to ask you, when your world is about to be turned upside down, what do you need to hear? Or if it's just been turned upside down, what kind of truths do you need to bolster you up and to get you through the difficulty or the tragedy or the challenge that you're facing, right before the doctor tells you what he found on the scan, right before your child comes home with heart-wrenching news, right before you find something out you wish you never knew, right before the, the dreaded phone call comes, What are the kinds of things you need to know? What's the kind of truth you have to have embedded like rebar in your soul to enable you to face storms, trials, tragedies? How do you face these things in a way that honors the Lord and doesn't totally shipwreck your faith? We've seen people respond different ways to, to trial and to tragedy and to suffering. Some people have faced challenges with poise and grace and confidence and joy even, sorrowful but always rejoicing. And perhaps we've seen others, or maybe honestly if we're thinking of ourselves, we've known that we have not responded well to suffering, that we have responded by becoming inconsolable. We've become unhinged as if we're a ship at sea in a storm with no anchor at all, how do we ensure that when difficulties and challenges and tragedies come that we have a stability, that we can live in a way that honors the Lord in the midst of the most challenging types of things? Well, in our passage this morning, the disciples are on the edge of the life-transforming event. In fact, a series of events, a series of dominoes that will begin to fall that will set them into a a period of their life that could be described, I think, is probably the most difficult thing they'll have to face. It's the Passion Week. In other words, it's the week, it's the last week before Jesus dies. Uh, We talked about a few weeks ago um, the triumphal entry that happened on the Sunday of the Passion Week where Jesus comes with his disciples finally back to Jerusalem. The crowds are all going wild. It's the return of the son of David. He's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem. Everyone's excited. Sunday night, Jesus goes into the temple. He evaluates. He sees what's going on, and he leaves. Monday morning, he comes in, and he, on the way in from Bethany to Jerusalem, he sees that fig tree. Remember this? And he curses the fig tree because it appeared to have fruit. It appeared to be healthy. It appeared to have all these leaves. He goes, evaluates it, and it's empty. It's barren. He sees that as a picture of Israel. He curses the fig tree as a demonstration of what he's actually going to do to the temple. That is what follows. He follows right after the fig tree. He goes to the temple. He shuts down the place. He turns over tables. He puts an end to the sacrificial system. And at the end of that entire day, he goes back. And now... It's Tuesday, so keep us kind of in the chronology Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life. Remember, it will be Friday that Jesus is on a cross. So to put yourself in the timeline of the last week of Jesus' life, what we're about to see is going to happen now Tuesday morning, and Jesus is going to begin teaching. And he's going to begin teaching with uh, these very Basic ideas that are central to living a life of faith, particularly in the midst of something that is going to absolutely turn their lives upside down. That's what they're going to face. Think about the disciples for a moment. Think about their mindset. Their entire worldview had been based on this idea that the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is going to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. And the apostles are going to be right there with them as he establishes their kingdom. This is what they expected and they really had no reason to doubt that he could. Obviously, all along the way, Jesus has been demonstrating his messianic identity, hasn't he? He's, he's been able to multiply the loaves. He's been able to heal the sick. He's been able to cast out demons. He's been able to even bring back the dead to life. He's been able to do miracle after miracle after miracle. He teaches with authority. He can change the weather. He can walk on water. If you're one of the disciples, you're going, it's going to happen. He's he's the messianic king. He's the son of David. He's entering Jerusalem. It's all about to happen. And they were ecstatic that this is their calling to follow Jesus into this kingdom. This is what they're all expecting. And so it makes a, a sense that we've been hitting these from time to time, over the last several months, that whenever Jesus brings up his death, what do the disciples do? They they have no category for it. They don't know how to process this idea that this Messiah will die. Eight, Chapter 8, verse 31, I'm going to die. They don't get it. Chapter 9, verse 31, after the transfiguration, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. They don't get it. Just recently, if you even look back in my Bible, it's on the left-hand side, right there of the page we're open to, he says he's going to die and even gets so specific about how it's going to happen. Very precise prophecy of his own death, verse thirty. Uh, Three, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And did they get it then? No, they don't get it. And now time is ticking. It's coming up to the day of Jesus' death. He has been teaching them all along, but he needs to begin an even more focused preparation for the disciples when their worlds get flipped upside down. How they need to think when everything they expect and everything they hope just doesn't happen the way they want it to. It's urgent now that they need to know this. I do think, in my experience, counseling people and trying to help people navigate particularly difficult seasons of life, even though the temptation is to want some sort of silver bullet truth that can fix everything, like, what's the secret to get through this? Like, don't you have, like, some magic verse I haven't read yet? And you can give me that, and, and that'll make it all clear, and I'll know how to get through this suffering? That that's never what really is needed in those moments? In fact, what is needed most in the times of extreme tragedy is like the ABCs. The most basic elements of the Christian life. Because it's in those moments that we actually begin to see that living a life according to the basics is actually not as easy as we thought it was. And we need to have these basics drilled into our Core, to have them in our bones. What's happening with the disciples? Their whole world's about to be flipped upside down. In, they left their jobs. They're invested three years into following this guy. Every one of their hopes and dreams seemed to be uh, promised to be fulfilled very soon. Everything's about to happen, and it's all going to be shattered. Nothing's going to turn out the way they hoped. Just, in, just after their Time or after the time Jesus dies, they're going to become something of an outlaw in Jerusalem. They're going to be hated. The book of Acts goes on to show that the people who killed Jesus are going to soon turn against the apostles themselves. And actually, we go on and look at church history, all of these men, except John. Uh, were martyred for the faith. John will be exiled and die at old age as an exile. But all of these guys need to know how to live after Jesus has ascended into heaven. They need to have their faith secure in the basics. Jesus needs to teach them what they, in a sense, already know. And there's a sense, church, that you need to hear again what you already know. That these things that we already know need to be brought back to bear. The ABCs, the basics of Christianity need to be brought back to life again in our hearts. We need to hear them over and over again. So look at John, or sorry, look at Mark. Not John, look at Mark. Chapter 11, verse 20. And let's just kind of get reading again and we'll we'll pick up the context as we go. And uh, verse 20, we kind of looked at a little bit last week, but it says, as they passed by in the morning... This is Tuesday morning. Remember Sunday, the triumphal entry. Monday, the destruction of the temple, not literally, but prefigured in the judgment of Christ and turning things over. That all happens Monday. And now it's Tuesday morning, and they're walking back from Bethany, is where they've been staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they come back, and they see, it says there, they saw the fig tree. That Jesus had cursed the previous day. Okay, so remember they saw that that had happened on Monday. They're walking back in. They look now at the tree. They didn't notice that it had been destroyed the day before. But they now notice, it says, that the fig tree was withered away to its roots. The whole thing had died. The leaves have all fallen. The branches are dead I don't know if you've ever seen a dead tree, something that's entirely dead. You can almost pull it up by the roots because it's all rotten from the inside out. Well, that's what's happened. Again, symbolizing God's judgment on Israel. The fig tree that Jesus had cursed, Jesus or sorry, Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And what begins to happen here is that that little interchange of Peter recognizing this dead fig tree leads into Jesus beginning to teach on the basics of the Christian life, the basics of faith, the things you need, the foundations, if you will, that the disciples will need to live in the coming week as everything begins to turn upside down. That's his... This is the context. What do they need to hear when everything's going haywire? They need to hear what Jesus is about to say, and Jesus is using the power displayed in the cursing of the fig tree as a springboard to teach on the basics of the Christian life. I mean, think about it. They're about to see their best friend tortured. They're about to see the hopes of glory dashed. They're about to see their life expectations crumble in front of them. They're going to be confronted by their own personal failure as they all abandon Jesus in his greatest time of need. They're going to be sacked by shame and guilt. They're going to realize that the same ire that the chief priests and the scribes came at Jesus with will be now aimed at them. Everything's going south. What do they need? When you're facing a life that seems to be crumbling in front of you and the hopes and dreams you once had are beginning to shatter, what do you need? I think what Jesus said to his disciples are what we need as well. So let me read verses 22 to 26. We're going to see three basics. You already know, but you need to be able to reconsider this morning. Verse 22. And Jesus answered them,
1: Have faith in
0: God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. you have anything against anyone so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses? I wonder if you noticed the three elements here, the three basics of the Christian life. They're quite obvious when you take a moment to try to look at the passage. Verse 22, faith in God. Verses 23 to 24, prayer without doubting. And then verses 25 to 26, forgiveness of others who sin against you. These are basics, aren't they? Faith.
1: You have to have faith in God prayer
0: and then to forgive others i find it interesting that on the week that jesus is about to die he begins by almost going back to the very beginning to start laying foundations that they've already been taught i mean these things are not new to them but to reestablish them this is a moment jesus took and seized to teach them faith and prayer and forgiveness we need to hear these this morning ourselves. Let's, let's look at them one by one. First, the basics of the faith. Number one, you must have faith in God. Let's just look at the context real quick. He says this right after the fig tree has been cursed. And what's happening here is Jesus has done this miracle. He's done this miracle of destruction. It's actually the only miracle of destruction that you'll find in the Gospels, that all the other miracles that Jesus did were positive and constructive. They were healing or casting out demons or things like that. This is a, a miracle of destruction. It is the miracle where Jesus brings death to bear on a living thing. And it is in light of that that Peter goes, wow, look, he says. Verse 21, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed, it's withered. He sees a, a supernatural work of God take place right before him, and he's in shock. And Jesus grabs this moment. He's going to teach them faith. Well, what's the connection? Why faith? I I believe what's going on here is that Jesus is saying there's a power that is outside of you. There's a power that you do not have in yourself, that is not inherent to you. But it's in God. It's in me. And so this amazement that you have that I could speak a curse to a fig tree and that it would die... I want you to recognize that that power is in God and that you ought to have faith in him. Put your faith in that God who has that omnipotent power. Move your eyes to God and not to your own strength. In other words, I think it's important to note here that when Jesus is saying have faith in God, I don't think the emphasis is on the have faith Although, of course, that's part of it, but it's on the in God. Like that is what he's getting at, that you are to put your faith not in yourself, not in your circumstances, not in your abilities, not in your gifts, not in your talents, but to put your faith to look away from everything else and to put your faith in God who can do All things that can do anything that has repeatedly demonstrated his ability to do miracles. Put your faith in him. That's what they're going to need to know. You're going to go through a thing that gets your life upside down. What do you need? Put your faith in God. Move your eyes to God. Look to God. What does it mean to have faith? Faith is the idea of complete trust. It's the idea of reliance that I'm going to rely upon God. It is confidence that I actually believe that God is good, that God is wise, that God is on purpose ruling this universe for his ends. Rely on him completely. To believe in God, to put faith in God is to trust his word. What do we have right here in the scriptures? It is to believe his character that he is a good God who's sovereign over all, that he's infinitely wise and that everything he's doing is according to his perfect wisdom, that even his purposes, it means trusting and putting faith in his purposes, that his purposes for you and whatever you're going through are according to his good character, that he will always keep his promises. And so he, Jesus here, is saying, put your faith in God's character, in God's word and promises, in God's purposes for your life. Put your faith there. Isn't that what a Christian is, by the way? A Christian is, in case you're wondering, who thinks that they are wise enough to run their lives on their own. That's not what a Christian is. A Christian is not someone who puts faith in themselves. Anyone who tells you, Hey, just believe in yourself. You got this. You can do it. Just recognize that that piece of advice is the opposite of the kind of advice that Jesus would give you. He would not tell you to put faith in yourself, to believe in yourself. He would say, rather, have faith in God. Stop looking at yourself. Stop thinking that you might be able to do this on your own. Look away from self, look away from ability, look away from talent, look away from your own resources, become like a beggar and look to the outside, to the one who is rich and generous and kind and put your faith in him. Rely upon his word, believe his promises and understand his character. Be like a child who when they're walking in the dark, may not be able to see what's out ahead, but can grab daddy's hand and trust that daddy is good, he is kind and he will take care of me and he will lead me. When the world turns upside down, have faith in God, in Him. That's what it is to be a Christian. It's so basic, isn't it? And yeah, I think to pause and just... Ask ourselves as a church, do we really have faith,
1: confidence, reliance, trust
0: in the living God? Or are we, as some have called it, practical atheists? We would sign the doctrinal statement that would tell you that we believe in God. But when it comes down to the way we actually live, we live as if there is no God. We live as if if we do believe there's a God, he's so distant that he couldn't possibly care about what's going on in our lives. And so pragmatically, we're just trying to scramble along and get through life with the resources we have. We are functional atheists, as if God does not exist and it really is up to us. Let me ask you, does the faith you profess have any bearing on the way you do your job,
1: the way you parent your children,
0: on the way you'll face this trial that will come up? Does your faith shape you in any real practical way? Some of you are battling hopelessness. Some of you are battling joblessness. Some of you are battling singleness. Some of you are battling loneliness. Some of you are struggling with vexing sins that just keep coming back. Some of you with anxiety, some of you with worry, some of you with panic. Some of you are facing dysfunctional marriages, dysfunctional families or wayward children or insecurity that no one else recognizes. Others are facing bodily pain, disease or disablement. Some of you are dealing with the sins of others, betrayal or backstabbing or deceit or gossip or slander or rejection. And let me ask you, is God trustworthy to help you navigate all of these things. Is he? Yes, he is. Jesus would not tell us to put our faith in God if God was not reliable to see us through in all these things we could face. He is absolutely reliable. If you have any question whether he is reliable to see you through the storm you're in or about to go through, let me encourage you to go find an older saint in this room and ask him or ask her. Is God going to see me through this? And they will say, oh, yes, he will. And they will have story after story after story of how God has been faithful to them. When their job was lost, when their child turned away from the Lord, when they had no idea what the future would hold, when marriage looked like it would break up, when everything seemed to be crumbling, the seasoned saint will tell you he is faithful. Trust him. You can believe him. Church, I urge you, trust God. Look to God. Have faith in God and see he is reliable. He is so good. He has never done you any harm in all your life and for all eternity. He never will. He will discipline you because he loves you. Life will be hard at times because he loves you. But the challenges that you will face are not the result of God turning away from you. Banish that thought from your mind. No, he is in the thick of it with you. What a savior he is to join you in the sufferings that you will face. And he will ask you, walk with me, have faith in me, trust me. Have faith in God. You will never regret in trusting your entire life to God you will find that he will be faithful again and again and again even when you're not he will be and praise God for that great is thy faithfulness amen he is faithful now what happens if you actually believe that God is that way <laughs> what is it turn into in your life? How does this actually begin to shape the way that you live? Notice, back to our text, that immediately after this call to faith, and by the way, it is an imperative, I hope you noticed that, have faith in God. You know, God is saying to you this morning, trust me, have faith in me. It is an imperative. But if you have faith in him, now he moves on to the life of faith or the expression of faith in verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Here's the basic number two, basic training number two. Life of the the fundamentals of the Christian Faith number two is that you must pray without doubt. You must have faith in God and then let that faith translate into prayer. Faith and prayer are related, aren't they? In fact, you know whether you have faith or even the condition of your faith, whether it's strong or whether it's weak, whether it's growing or whether it's dying, based on whether or not you pray and how you pray. You know, you check a body to see if it's alive by looking at the pulse, right? You try to see if the pulse is, is pumping. And if the heart's still beating, then you know we got some life left in this body. How do you know that there's spiritual life? How do you know that there's faith in a person? And how do you know in your own life if you're a growing believer, if your faith is legit, if it's genuine, if if you're actually living a life of faith, check your pulse of prayer. Are you a praying person? Has the faith that you professed become so real in part of your life that it has put you on your knees before God in humble, desperate prayer? Do you pray. Because Jesus clearly says that the mark of faith or the expression of faith is that you pray. And he uses this analogy. I want you to see this in verse 23. And this is, we're about to see how this is so misunderstood. In many circles, we'll get there in a moment. He says, you know, if if you have faith, what you got to do or or what you can do, I say to you, uh, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea, This idea that this impossible thing, this mountain, you can look out, some of you over by the window, you can see this giant mountain, and if you were to envision that mountain being uprooted, what would that even look like? Boulders coming, crumbling down, and then to be passing over the mainland and being thrown out into the ocean. Some people have thought, well, if we just had enough faith, we could actually literally do that that the problem is is the disciples clearly didn't understand that to be what Jesus was teaching they never tried to do it they never attempted it it never occurred to them that some people might actually take that literally it's not what the, Jesus is getting at and in fact the, the analogy, or the, the metaphor that's being used here was a common metaphor in Jesus day it was used to, uh, to to move a mountain was a metaphor that was used to describe the ability to do the impossible or or, or something that was so uh, challenging that it didn't seem that there was any way around it. It wasn't that you could go over the mountain. It wasn't that you could go under the mountain. The mountain had to be moved. It seemed like an impossible task. And, and even in those days, rabbis, if you, they were particularly wise, uh, and, and a rabbi would be given this particularly difficult, challenging, complex issue, if they could solve the issue with wisdom, the, the rabbis would be called movers of mountains or rooters of mountains. That The rabbi was described with this hyperbole that they could move this problem. They could get through the problem. They could move the mountain. That was what they were getting at. It is a hyperbole. Again, it's not meant to be taken literally. If, if I say to you on the way to church this morning, I hit a million red lights. You go, Really? I didn't know there were a million red lights in Rancho Cucamonga. Or you might say, where did you drive from? Um, That would be misunderstanding my intention. So just understand when Jesus is saying this, He's using a metaphor, all right? He's using a hyperbole. It's intentionally overstated to make a big point. A mountain being moved is an impossible task being accomplished. He's saying to the disciples, if there's an impossible task that you cannot do, and you pray to God that this impossible task be removed, and you pray in faith, it can be done for you. It will be done for you, he says. It will be done for you. Now, okay.
1: Questions are starting to spring up in your mind. So I can
0: ask Jesus anything. Okay. I can I can live with that. You know, you look at verse forty-four, thirty-four, twenty-four. Sorry, verse twenty-four. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Let me just tell you that this verse, this passage, has taken a beating oh boy has this passage taken a beating by people who will misuse it pluck it out of context and use it in ways that it was never intended to be used and i'll explain it to you in a moment why but let me first tell you all the error that has come out of this verse have you ever heard of the name it and claim it theology name it and claim it prosperity gospel The idea that you can just name what you want. And if you have enough faith that God is obligated to give it to you. You want healing? Yours. Just pray hard enough and have enough faith. You want a raise at work? Just pray for it. You'll have enough. If you have enough faith, it's yours. You want a nicer car? Better have enough faith because that car could be yours. More faith is the answer. Just believe harder. No harder, you know, keep believing harder, you know, just more faith. And if you are not getting what you want, then just, you're not believing enough. So just try to believe more. It's taught by all kinds of false teachers, popular ones. Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, Crufflo Dollar, Joyce Meyer, and many others are getting rich by telling people that if they just have enough faith, that they too can get all kinds of financial upgrades in their life. Joyce Meyer, I was looking around to see some of the things that she was teaching. She was urging her followers to speak to their checkbooks and tell them to rise up and live. It didn't work. It doesn't work. Creflo Dollar is quoted as saying, if I want to believe God for a $65 million jet, you cannot stop me. But it even becomes more, common in different ways. Uh, uh, It floated across my Facebook page this week, a post that said, the next four days, God will fix your bills. The the S in bills was a dollar sign. If you believe, like, hype amen, and share. You didn't know God worked through Facebook posts, did you? (laughs) Turning God into a genie To meet our every need. This is blasphemous. It is an offense to God. And it is an abuse of scripture. Let me teach you an important truth for how to study your Bible. A principle called the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith is this idea. That when you're trying to understand what the Bible teaches. And you come across A challenging verse, you always let the more clear verses interpret the less clear verses. Because God is one, and God is the author, and God has inspired all of Scripture, and he makes sure that it all coheres, and there is no contradiction at all in the Bible. And so what we do, if we're not quite sure about a passage, hey, what does this mean? What do we do? We see what the rest of the Bible teaches about prayer or about that topic. In other words, the other way that this principle is described is let Scripture interpret Scripture. Scripture ought to interpret Scripture. And when you actually begin to wonder, what does Mark eleven twenty four 24 mean? That if we ask whatever in prayer, we can, if we believe that we've received it, it will be ours. We begin to understand that their Bible actually speaks about prayer in a lot of ways. Even practically. If we, if we try to understand 1124, we just uh, logically understand that this, this can't be some unqualified claim as if whatever we want, no matter what, God will give it to us if we believe enough. It, it can't mean that. I mean, I'll give you an illustration. You ever played sports? Ever prayed that your team, or prayed that your team would win? Ever paused to consider that there might be someone on the other team praying that they might win? I remember having that realization in junior high and going, "Oh no, there might be Christians on the other team too." <laughs> what if they believe more than me? This is a problem. What is God going to do? Uh, maybe God likes me more than them if we win, and maybe He doesn't like me as much if the other team wins. Uh, logically it doesn't make any sense to believe that we can just ask whatever we want in any situation and God is obligated to give it to us. Because there are people who are praying for different things. If we just want what we want without any concern, logically it doesn't make sense. And also scripturally it doesn't make sense. I'll give you five different reasons why God might not be answering your prayers. The Bible actually has a to say about prayer one reason is according to psalm 66 verse 18 if you're cherishing sin in your heart god doesn't hear your prayer of course god knows he's omniscient he knows everything but if you're saying you want things from god but you're holding on to your own sin god is not gonna help you in your rebellion by giving you the things you're asking for cherishing sin in your heart is like a big hindrance to your prayers in fact, that's what 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that husbands who don't live with their wives in an understanding way, the text actually says, your prayers are hindered. It's affecting your prayers. Secondly, another reason why God might not be answering our prayers is because our motives might be selfish. James chapter 4, verse 3 says, you ask and do not receive. This is talking about unanswered prayer. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. God is not going to finance your rebellion. God's not going to answer your prayers to have more idols. God doesn't do that. He loves you too much. He's not going to help you get more sinful stuff in your life. It's like the the thief praying for safety on his way to rob a bank. God is is kind to not give us all the things we ask. Because by the way, aren't you glad that God has not given you everything you've asked for? Go back and think of some of the prayers you prayed and how God not giving you what you asked for has turned out to be far greater than the thing you're asking for. In chapter 4, verse 4 of James, this is right after you ask wrongly, he says, James is very blunt, he says, you adulterous people are asking from God that which you will use yourself. He compares it to adultery. In fact, the Greek of that verse, that phrase, is not you adulterous people. It's you adulteresses. It's feminine. In other words, James is comparing people who pray selfishly, asking for God to fulfill their selfish desires to a woman who asks her husband for money only to go spend it on her prostitution. Would we ever be want to be guilty of that? What a crime against God. God won't answer our prayers when our motives are selfish. Here's another reason why God might not be answering our prayers. They lack earnestness. Luke 11 describes the earnest person continually, persistently, asking and asking and asking, and eventually, to, because of the persistent the request, is given, some of us, we don't even care what we pray for. It's like a party balloon. We just float it up into the sky. We don't care what happens. And off our prayers go, we never think about it again. Now, God can answer those prayers, and he has, and he does, and and that is because of his gracious kindness to us. But the Bible does teach that we have to pray without ceasing, to not give up, to be persistent, to keep coming to God because he delights in our company. Here's another reason, number four. And this is what we find in our text. Sometimes it's flat-out doubt. We actually don't believe God can do what we're asking. We believe, or we sorry, we pray without belief. We pray filled with doubt. It is if as if the prayer is more ritualistic, just routine. There's no confidence. It's more of an outward religious activity. We just pray because it's an obligation that we have as Christians. So God doesn't need to answer that prayer. And here's the last element of why our prayers might not be answered. Prayers might not be answered because it's not according to God's perfect, sovereign will. I mean, at the end of the day, you could be praying in faith and and not praying selfishly and praying with persistent, and, and you're not cherishing any heart. You're coming to God, and yet you might not have your prayer answered. This humbles us in prayer, doesn't it? Because it forces us to take the posture of Jesus in the garden. You remember Jesus' prayer? We're going to take a model for prayer. It is Jesus saying, this cup can be removed from me. Please let it pass. But, but, what does he say? Not my will. Your will be done.
1: God is God.
0: We are not. And God's will will stand. And God is infinitely wiser than you or I. And he reserves the right to withhold from you the things for which you ask. The key to interpreting Mark 11:24 the previous section have faith in God. Because what happens if you have faith in God? You are trusting his wisdom. You are trusting his word. You are trusting his purposes. And then as an expression of faith, You are asking for his glory, his purposes, his promises to be fulfilled. Your agenda melts away in the sun of God's glory, and suddenly your greatest longings are for him and his purposes and his glory. And so you can come to him and offer your requests, but what is great, the greatest request that you have as you come to God in prayer is not that you get all the things you want. No, as you grow in Christ, the greatest desire that you have that colors your every prayer is this, your will be done, your glorious name be hallowed, your kingdom come. That's how we should pray. And so I ask you, church, consider the way you pray, the things you pray for. If you were to take an inventory of all your prayers, let's imagine every single thing you've prayed for is written down in a book and you were beginning to read this book, to, to chronicle all the things that you've ever prayed for, what would people conclude that you value most? Would they say, wow, this person really badly wants comfort in life, judging by how often that's what the requests are about? Or would they say, reading this book of prayers, your prayers, would they say, this person
1: loves God and desires that
0: God be glorified his or her life, family, and their church, that is how they pray. It's clear. Their faith is in God. So pray for God's name to be glorified. Pray for His kingdom to come. Pray for His will to be done. Yes, pray for provision. Yes, pray for gospel witness. Pray, please, pray for sinners to be saved. Pray for doors of the gospel opportunities to be swung wide open. Pray, and in all things say, Your will be done for Your glory, and we humble ourselves under the infinite wisdom of God. Are you praying? Friends, one of the things that most encourages me, just just fires me up, just just makes me want to keep praying, believing that what Jesus said is true, that we ought to pray without doubt, and when we do, mountains are moved, that we should have utter confidence. One of the things that just encourages me to keep on praying is to recognize how many times God has been faithful to answer prayer. Have you ever looked in the past and just asked yourself how frequently God has answered your prayers? I mean, the very fact that you're here this morning is an answered prayer. If you're a believer this morning, God has answered your biggest prayer, that you would have your sins forgiven and be reconciled to God so that you will have an eternal inheritance one day in glory. He has answered that prayer. The cry of faith has been answered. And then to see that God has been faithful again after Uh, Again, after again, after again, after again, he's been answering all your prayers. Not in the way you maybe would have wondered, not in the timing you would have hoped for, but has he been faithful to you? He has been so faithful to answer prayers. I think of our church as just a living, breathing, walking monument to the power of answered prayer. A number of years ago, a few years ago, we moved out here, and we were, in one sense, scared to death, and what might happen out here, starting this new church revitalization thing, not knowing what in the world would happen. And we prayed God might build his church here, and he answered that prayer. And then we prayed that God would raise up elders, and he answered that prayer. And we prayed that God would give us the funds. In order, we need funds to be able to do ministry here, and he answered that prayer. Check check, check, answered prayer, answered prayer, answered prayer. God, we were asking that you would save sinners. Check, answered prayer. God, we're praying that you would create health and growth among us. Check, answered prayer. God, create a culture of discipleship and counseling and evangelism. Check, he's answering that prayer. He has been so faithful why would we not continue to bring him our greatest needs and our greatest requests for his glory? Some of you are praying through the membership directory with faithfulness. Kyle and Felix and I have been trying to be faithful to pray through the directory and get this, doing this together, trying to encourage one another. Why? So we can pray through all the members of our church systematically through, throughout the month. Many others are doing the same thing. We're just praying I believe that there are people growing in Christ this morning because God is answering our prayers. I believe that people are having questions answered because God is answering our prayers. I believe that people are getting saved and welcomed into the family because God is faithful to answer prayers. Move mountains and do the impossible.
1: Church, keep praying. Don't give up. He is faithful. One of the most uh, encouraging parts of my week.
0: Coming back on Sunday evenings because we pray together. We we spend more time in corporate prayer on Sunday nights. And it's a different format, obviously. We pray together on Sunday mornings. But the way we pray together on Sunday evenings is a bit different. We have people sharing requests, or we pray for specific topics. And different people will join in and pray. One of my favorite things that just leaves my soul refreshed and enriched is when we hear of prayers answered. Isn't that amazing? That God has answered that prayer, that specific prayer that we were coming to God with regularly, he has actually answered that prayer. And then we all celebrate together the goodness of God. I think if there's one place in the world I want my kids to be on Sunday night, it's there. Hearing that again and again and again, he's faithful. He hears us. He answers prayer. That's the story I want them to hear. That's the story I need to remind myself that we are serving and worshiping the living God who is involved in the very details of our lives and He's concerned and He answers our prayers. So we do this again for our own soul's sake. Look at our God. Isn't He wonderful? And so He says, Pray. It's an expression of faith. Whatever you ask, even the moving of a mountain, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And I will be the first to confess that I don't know how this always works out in our lives. be honest. I know that 2 Corinthians 12 is in the Bible where Paul is praying for a thorn to be removed. God doesn't remove it. I have been praying prayers
1: that I think would honor the Lord. For years.
0: And they're still unanswered. I think probably many of you have too. I don't know the theological answer as to why that has happened in every case. I know that I trust in the sovereignty of God. Sometimes I come back to what Abraham had to say. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Humble
1: myself and say, not my will. That yours be done.
0: Pray. Don't give up. Your world's upside down, and you're stretched at every angle. Have faith in God, and then pray about the mountains that are in your path. Really pray, persistently pray. Then he connects in verse 25 a third element of the basic life of the Christian. 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive. Give anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. He envisions the disciples responding to this call to faith and this call to prayer, and they're now beginning to pray. They're they're doing what Jesus has called them. But in their prayers, something comes up, a thought, like a pebble in the shoe bugging them, of, what some thing, of of something someone has done to them. If you have anything against anyone that's a pretty broad statement anything against anyone, he says, "In your praying, you need to forgive them." The, the life of faith will involve forgiveness. And notice that he connects it. Look at the words there, the the actual words. So that, so that you must forgive the person you've got something against so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Isn't that an amazing connection? That If you are a person who knowingly is holding a grudge against somebody, anybody, for doing anything, big or little, you have a grudge in your heart, you have unforgiveness harbored in your heart, and you know that self-consciously, you are withholding forgiveness of that person. What Jesus is saying, I want you to hear this. If you are doing that, you have no right to expect that God will forgive you the day of judgment. That's what he's saying.
1: That there is no such thing as a forgiven Christian who will not forgive.
0: That doesn't exist. Why? Because the very essence of what it means to be a Christian is to be humbled before God to recognize your great sin against the holiness of God, to recognize how merciful then God has been to you. I want to invite you to think about your life for a second. Think about your past. Think about maybe the years before you knew Christ and the ways that you lived selfishly. That you lived in rebellion. You lived for your own glory. You didn't care about the glory of God. You pursued your sin. You pursued your lusts. You pursued your passions. You did it perhaps boldly, perhaps even confidently. I know I did. That I lived for myself. That I was concerned only about myself that I did not care about God and His glory for many years of my life, though I was taught about God, and though I had an understanding mentally of the gospel, I was a selfish person, a fool. And how patient was God with me. And then He saved me. He gave His Son for me. His Son redeemed me. Clothed me in his righteousness and forgave all my sins, took all the burden of my sins and threw them in the deepest sea. He doesn't bring them up against me anymore. And still I sin against him. Still, there are times of pride and selfishness and self-absorption. And how patient is God with me. Friend, how patient has God been with you? How merciful has he been with you day after day, week after week, year after year. Patience, patience, like a never-ending Niagara Falls of patience and grace and mercy that He continues to pour out on you. What a God! And could I
1: then turn to someone who's offended me? Withhold mercy? Oh, that would blaspheme my Savior. That would
0: make God out to be some sort of monster. I couldn't represent Him well if I didn't offer anyone forgiveness. Or if I treated them as if they needed to earn some sort of forgiveness before I would offer it. No. If I understand that I have only ever been in need of mercy and that God has been so abundantly and continually merciful to me, then how must I treat others? It's mercy. It's mercy. How could it be that we could withhold forgiveness? Friends, you will be hurt in this fallen world. You will be mistreated. You will be underappreciated. You will be marginalized. You will be maligned. You will be betrayed. The question is not if, when, how.
1: When you forgive. When you forgive, you are imitating God. You are imitating the living God. God freely forgives him. God forgives in
0: such a way that he never brings it up against us anymore. God is free and willing to forgive. You don't know that forgiveness. I would invite you to come this morning to experience God's forgiveness. In the death and resurrection of Christ, everything that has needed to be done to accomplish salvation and forgiveness of sins has been done, and now God has swung open wide the gates of mercy, and you can come and experience freely His grace and mercy. And when you do, when you stand praying, you will be able to forgive, because you will be in awe of the mercy that God
1: has shown you. The disciples need the basics here.
0: Jesus gives it to them. Have faith in God. Pray without doubt. And forgive anyone who offends you. Church, if we adopt these three basics, it will become a foundation upon which we will build our lives. It will become like rebar in our souls. so We can face whatever... Lord puts in our path. Lord, in one sense, we already know this. But in a very real sense, we confess that the life of faith is foreign to us. And the life of believing prayer can be foreign to us. And even forgiveness can feel so difficult. So only by your Spirit can we do any of these things.
1: We ask for his help. In Jesus' name, amen.